2014. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we will review the 2008 book, The Music of Pythagoras, by musicologist Kitty Ferguson. Now, this is a wonderfully erudite and deeply meaningful book on the accomplishments and lasting influence of the most important of the pre-Socratian philosophers and perhaps the most important ancient avatar of our Western esoteric tradition. Now, as a musicologist, Ferguson is able to fully expound on the master's development of the music of the spheres. From a mythical Orpheus through um, the fledgling science of Kepler to close encounters of the third kind. And I said we can all whistle that one. The Pythagorean harmonious universe of music, mathematics, and geometry has been revalidated in modern times with the advent of new theories in quantum physics. It was, of course, the bedrock of the Kabbalah, of alchemy, and magic. We'll demonstrate some applications of the Pythagorean magical scale used to activate psychic centers, otherwise known as chakras, and discuss the employment of these techniques in magical operations. So, tune in, tune up, and we'll sing along with the planets. Let's, um, let's sing along with the planet here. <laughs> also located in the region of the third eye. And the sound was created on a crystal bowl made from the, uh, the star mineral Moldavite, uh, an ancient meteorite that came down in Eastern Europe and has been linked to the Holy Grail by the Parsifal. Now, that sound was an A note and is perfectly uh, delineated in that particular configuration by Johannes Kepler in his uh, almost modern rearrangement of the old original Pythagorean scale of the music of the spheres. Now, um, we'll get into more of that, and you'll hear more of the music of the spheres as we go along. But uh, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, 
Madam Ferguson's magisterial work here, the music of Pythagoras. Now, on the cover, she has a log line on the cover. How an ancient brotherhood cracked the code of the universe and lit the path from antiquity to outer space. Well, I'll read the, um, the, the dust flap here. The enthralling story of Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans whose insights transformed the ancient world and still inspire the realms of science, mathematics, philosophy, and the arts. Pythagoras' influence on the ideas and, therefore, on the destiny of the human race was probably greater than that of any single man before or after him. So wrote Arthur Koisler. Though most people know of him only for the famous Pythagorean theorem, that's A squared plus B squared equals C squared, in fact, the pillars of our scientific tradition believe that the universe is rational, that there is a unity to all things, and that numbers and mathematics are a powerful guide to truth about nature and the cosmos, hark back to the thinking of this legendary scholar and his ancient followers. Born around 570 B.C. on the Aegean island of Samos, and uh, Sir Zandria spent some time on Samos, so we, we have a... We have a uh, a Samosian here than Pythagoras' homeland, who's sitting here smiling at me. Pythagoras founded his own school at Croton in southern Italy, and that's also called Crotona, where he and his followers attempted to unravel the surprising truths concealed behind such ordinary tasks as tuning a lyre while considering why some of the string lengths produce beautiful sounds and others discordant ones. And they uncovered the ratios of musical harmony and recognized that hidden behind the complexity of nature are patterns and ordinary relationships. Some of them later may have found something darker in numbers and nature, irrationality a revelation so unsettling and subversive that it may have contributed to the destruction of their brotherhood. Kenny Ferguson brilliantly evokes the ancient world of Pythagoras, showing the way ideas spread. In antiquity and in the Middle Ages, and chronicling the remarkable influence Pythagoras and his followers have had on so many notable people, from Plato to Bertrand Russell, and events in the history of Western thought and science. The music of Pythagoras brings a poignant human saga to readers who are reminded daily that harmony and chaos can and do exist. Now, Kitty Ferguson was the author of Tycho and Kepler, Measuring the Universe, The Fire of the Equations, Prisons of Light, and Stephen Hawking, Quest 
for a theory of everything. She is also a Juilliard-trained professional musician, and she lives in western New Jersey. She is a very, very attractive-looking female, and uh, with a prodigious intellect and a marvelous grasp on the subjects. Now let's talk about how how Mr. Ferguson approaches this this almost legendary figure of Pythagoras. We know he existed, and yet, as she is very quick to point out, because she's a scholar and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to uh, give you the impression that. Or that everything she's saying about Pythagoras is absolutely factual because it, we have the problem here is, and she points out, that Pythagoras, if Pythagoras wrote anything down, possibly he didn't, um, if he wrote anything down, none of, none of what he wrote has survived, and, and uh, virtually all of our knowledge of him comes from a few comments that have been written down by his contemporaries, just just short comments. But then the three biographies of him were written several hundred years later. In fact, uh, after the time of Christ, actually, by by, uh, Prophery, Amicus, uh, and, and one other one. That they And all of these biographies, although they agree... Uh, on the man's greatness and the basic principles of his teachings and and uh, pretty much what he accomplished, uh, they, there's enough dissimilarity in these, in these biographies to indicate that uh, we really don't know point by point uh, how his life unfolded. We have to... I wonder whether appropriate is right or Yamagus is right or whatever. And yet we must assume that these uh, these Neoplatonic uh, philosophers in their own right, that they had access to sources that we no longer have. And so uh, we are left with, with a few paradoxes about Pythagoras, but for the most part, there's enough in the biographies that exist to where we can piece together the main the main stories of man's life. So let's um, start off by saying that he was born um, on the island of Samos, or if it possibly he possibly born in Sidon uh, in Phoenicia, and uh, but he was he was essentially. A, a Samosian. He he was he was a he was a Greek. Well, we wouldn't say that he was a Greek citizen. Okay, but uh, his mother was Phoenician, and his father was a Greek merchant, a very successful Greek merchant, who was also his uh, his father's hobby was jewel engraving, and you know, along with being a very successful merchant. Now Samos, an island in the Aegean which, as I say, Zandri has been there and actually spent some time there. It's the magical island that Shakespeare had in mind when he he created the Tempest. And uh, I wish I could get Zandri to tell us something about saying, well, she don't want to do it. I just said, I don't want to come talk about it. And, um, but it, it, it's a very steep island. There's high mountains, and 
And uh, it, it even has, uh, uh, like Maui out in Hawaii, it, it, it gets kind of alpine up in its in the higher reaches of its, of its mountainous area. And it's very forested, or at least it was, and it, uh, it really was the ideal island for Prospero uh, in the Shakespeare's The Tempest, the magical island. So this is where um, Pythagoras grew up. By the way, the name Pythagoras um, is really uh, means adorer of the Pythia, because he was, when he was a little child, he was taken to the Oracle of Delphi, and of course, according to the legend, she predicted that he would be uh, one of the great world teachers. And uh, so he, his father named him, uh, or he required the name of Pythagoras, adorer of the Pythia, and the Pythia being the the oracle, you know, the, the, the uh, prophetess. And um, so he, when he when he was a teenager, precocious teenager, his father, being a merchant and a sailor, uh, and being you know certainly now. Porphyry, uh, who was uh, a Neoplatonist and uh, uh, followed uh, sort of a student of Iamblichus, Porphyry actually put forth the idea that Pythagoras really was a Phoenician. And this um, is possible, and, and but certainly he had a very strong connection with the Phoenicians uh, through his mother and the fact that his father had business connections, obviously, with the Phoenicians and their sailors. And so um, uh, our, our friend uh, Karim al has written uh, his, his own book uh, on, on uh, Pythagoras called Pythagoras the Mathematician, which I must admit I haven't read yet, but I, but Karim, I will catch up and I will read that book definitely. Uh, but obviously Karim is being being an ardent Phoenician. He's going to take the proffer in his word and say that Pythagoras was a Phoenician. Well, now, actually, there's a, there's a good argument for this in the fact that Pythagoras did, among his world travels, at least in the part of the world he could reach, he did spend some time in Phoenicia studying the Phoenician, the Phoenician prophets and the, uh, the temple at, uh, uh, temple at Melkart, um, which I don't believe Alexander had torn it down by that time, at that time, but, um, so, and no, no, that's before Alexander tore it down. So, so the the temple, the, the temple of Melkart in Tyre, and Melkart, by the way, was Hercules. The Phoenicians, uh, Melkart, lord of the city, was the first Hercules. And so we have basically the big secret inside the temple was the labors of Hercules going around the zodiac, and here is little Pythagoras studying there, and then going to Mount Carmel, and then going to, um, you know, the, the Mount, uh, you know, into Phoenicia, and studying, now, Josephus thought that he was studying Jewish uh, philosophy, but probably wasn't. Uh, they probably, uh, this is probably Phoenician prophets, that's, that's uh, Enoch, and, um, you know, and then, um, um, and, uh, 
Enoch and perhaps Melchizedek and those those that, that, that the 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 L the L group because most of the Palestinians uh were at that time devotees of L. So this sub definitely now uh, I want to point out because we're gonna get into it later on a little bit, that there is a definite connection with the Melkart, uh, Phoenician Hercules and his labors, there's a definite connection to the Orphic theology, the mysterious Orphic theology that Pythagoras uh, adopted. And this was a this was a strange cult in Greece that came down from above the Black Sea. Uh, possibly of Scythian origin, maybe even eventually, maybe even further back of Central Asian origin, that uh, worshipped the stars and worshipped the planets and worshipped the and thought that the Milky Way was the river of souls and believed in reincarnation and all of the various things that are indicated by the labors of Hercules. And this, of course was something that Pythagoras very, very much related to and promoted and gave a very beautiful, profound philosophical structure to this myth, this Orphic myth. Now, uh, however, Pythagoras didn't just uh, go to... Uh, uh, go to uh, Phoenicia and pick that up and then and then you know go back and you know, get with the Orphics and and start off. Uh, he before he did that, uh, he spent a couple of years in Babylon learning Chaldean astrology, Babylonian astrology, and and then he then he went over to Egypt and he and and he he got. <laughs> He had a problem with the Egyptian priests. They kept passing him off from one one temple to another, and and of course he couldn't. Uh, he didn't have a problem learning Egyptian, but but he finally managed to get there to to uh, get their division of the soul and their concepts under under his intellectual belt, and then then he set out for his eventual home, Cortone or Cortona in Italy. Now. Um, that Cortona is uh, was and, and, and the modern version of it still is right down there on the instep of the Italian boot, right across the Adriatic. Now at that time, now Rome was just getting started, and they were up there. The Romans were up there on a big building program, having a grand expense. But that the southern part of Italy and Sicily was uh, mostly uh, mostly Greek. And you, would, you, you shouldn't actually call these Greek colonies because they weren't really colonies. Uh, they were part of what was known as Greater Greece. In other words, they were right across the, you know, the Adriatic from, from Greece. And so uh, Crotona was, a, was a, Greek, a Greek city, very sophisticated. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, this was the age uh, five. 550 BC. This was the age when when the Greeks were were beginning beginning just beginning to 
have their philosophical uh, um, flowering. And, of course, the Golden Age came a few hundred years later with Plato and Aristotle. But and, uh, but this is where these, this, with Pythagoras and his contemporaries, Empedocles and, and, uh, and Parmenides, and the, these, these were the pre pre-Socratian philosophers, that's what they're referred to as. And we, you know, Socrates, of course, was the, the, the direct mentor, the direct mentor of Plato, okay? However, the secret mentor of Plato, and this has become more and more obvious in, in, as time goes on, was Pythagoras. Plato was a was a closet Pythagorean. Now, um, let's let's uh, talk about just a little bit about what what Pythagoras's uh, what was his religion, and and uh, how did he come by it, and and uh, what and then we can see where he used philosophy and reason, intellect and logic. To to take that very mysterious, very very uh, ecstatic, orphic cosmology, and turn it into a vision of the universe, a virtually virtually scientific vision of the universe out of this incredible myth. Now, here's what the orphic cult which, as I say, it was not originally native to Greece. It isn't something that the Achaeans came up with or anything like that. This, this was a, some kind of an import from, uh, from north of the Black Sea. And as some people have suggested, um, it may have come down from Central Asia. And one of the reasons why they think that is because of... And the fact that it has these shamanic aspects to it, which we could attribute to Amanita if we wanted to, uh, and it has these shamanic aspects and this, these, the, uh, these Dionysian aspects to it, uh, the women going crazy, running around in the nude, catching little animals and eating them raw, uh, yeah, oh, that's uh, pretty wild. But, but this is shamanic and... Um, seems to, to have, especially because it, it is north, it's north polar. It 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 has that north north polar north star, hyperborean, mysterious mill of this of the stellar universe aspect to it. It 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 it, it carries that with it, and what these Orphics believed was that that they believed absolutely in reincarnation, which of course uh, the Egyptians didn't and, uh, and the Jews didn't and uh, the Babylonians didn't, but the Orphics did. And they believed in reincarnation, which of course fits in with the labors of Hercules, by the way. But they believed that the human soul came from the stars and returned to the stars. And they believed that, that it 
the human soul at death rode up the river of the Milky Way, which was the river of souls, and circled around the circumpolar vortex, and then came back down through the gate of of men, which was traditionally cancer, and 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 then was reincarnated in Leo, and uh, then went around and and uh, went down through the planetary spheres, uh, acquiring the attributes and the and the and the faults of each of these planetary spheres and the gods that rule them on the way down to be reborn. Now, this is not all of it. It's, 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 much, it's more complex than that. And there is a loss of memory at drinking of the river Leith and all these various things. This, uh, by the way, this belief generated uh, some marvelous poetry. These Orphics were buried with these amulets that had these I had uh, uh, these beautiful poems of how to of how to as, uh, ascend the river of the stars and and how to uh, how to meet the guardians and how to and, you know and you can see here this is not only the origin of uh, Pythagorean uh, this is this is the this is the Pythagorean challenge to to build a a structure for this. To build a, a to take this this vision of the universe and make it work philosophically, mathematically, geometrically, astrologically. Uh, in other words, this is the origin. This is the origin of what we call the Hermetic tradition. It goes back to really goes back to, to Pythagoras and to what Pythagoras learned in ancient Egypt, and of course also Egyptian concepts of the soul. And and this is uh, what uh, what we have to look at here is this remarkable myth that this philosopher is determined to reify. He's going to make this real. He's going to he's going to give his followers access to this. And he was a he was an aesthetic. He was very, very moral, but his morality was based upon the idea of of uh, uh, the, uh, purifying the soul so that you could rise on the planes. And this, when, I, when we talk about this Orphic myth, the character of Orpheus was kind of uh, a, almost a later addition to this. But in order to make uh, to to um, make the myth a bit more personified, the character of Orpheus, who was created, uh, the, the mythical character of Orpheus, uh, sort of a tragic hero, and his he he was a great singer and a great musician, and his instrument was the lyre, and. So he played the lyre, and of course I think we all know, we've all heard the myth of Orpheus where he goes down into the underworld to, 
save his love, Eurydice, and, and he can bring her back, but then he turns around and, and looks at her and loses her, and that's, that was the tragedy of, of, of Orpheus. Jean Cocteau made a wonderful symbolic movie out of that, by the way, uh, that, that uh, we run occasionally on... Uh, on uh, holidays, we will run Cocteau's Orpheus. Uh, beautiful film. But, but but Pythagoras took this, as we read in the, you know, on the book jacket. Pythagoras took this, this uh, the, the strings and the notes of Orpheus's lyre and started to analyze them in relation to the, uh, the music of the spheres, the spheres being the the scheme of the heavens. Now, they used to think of the planets in the, in the old days, of course, they were geocentric, as you know. And they used to think of the planets as being in fixed spheres, like like glass globes, one, one outside the other, outside the other, outside the other. And so the planets were on these, these spheres, and the spheres revolved. Um, and that's where we get the expression, the music of the spheres. Now, Pythagoras, uh, as we know, was very, very interested in mathematics in relation to to uh, just about everything in the universe. He he, he thought that, that everything in the universe had had some mathematical uh, uh, or uh, some kind of a uh, mathematical formula that could be attributed to it. And uh, this was, of course, a revolutionary idea. And uh, and along with this, he became fascinated with these musical notes and why, how they would apply to the spheres themselves, the, the planetary spheres, and, and the sphere beyond, on the idea of the spirit descending through the spheres. Now... Um, because of that, and because they had a geocentric uh, um, universe they were dealing with at that time, because of that, Pythagoras and his followers tended to think that the furthest out planet they could see was Saturn, of course. And they, 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 they thought that Saturn was moving very slowly. Uh, and, and well, actually, as you were, it was moving very slowly, but they thought it was moving fast. And the reason why they thought it was moving fast is because of the um, uh, the fact that it was it was fixed out there and the Earth was revolving. So they got this mistaken idea, or at least from their perspective, so it wasn't really mistaken. From their perspective, the further south planet they could see, Saturn, was moving faster. And Jupiter was moving a little slower, and so all the way down to the moon, which they thought was moving, uh, you know, moving the slowest. So they created their scale, which the which brought down the emanations. They created the scale based upon uh, the the, uh, the highest speed being attributed to Saturn, and or being attributed to the fixed stars, and then which was the sphere beyond Saturn. And then the next sphere was, was, uh, was Saturn, and then on down. Now, in order to develop this, uh, they developed, they invented a, um, a device. Actually, it's kind of a musical instrument called a monochord. Now, um, 
this makes, by the way, a great, a great scientific high school science project. Now, you, you, you now, Fred Adams and I, uh, well, Fred Adams primarily, and I help him a little bit. We made several minor chords and we experimented with them. Um, and the way you do this is you get yourself a, a nice straight four by four post. And, uh, you know, cut it off about, oh, you can make them any length you want, but uh, we had about five feet, and cut them off about five feet. And then you uh, you put a block about, oh, maybe an inch, about an inch high on one end and a block, another block an inch high on the other end, and you stretch a piano wire uh, very tightly across those blocks, and nail them down on either end, and then you have them crossing the box. And what you've got here is, and you screw them in real tight. And um, what you have here is a one-chord instrument. No sound box, unless you want to put one in. I suppose you could put a sound box in there. But, you know, you've you got a one-chord a one chord guitar with no sound box. And, and uh, then what you do is you create a floating bridge. Now, the floating bridge is just a, a piece of wood, a triangular piece of wood, but these triangular rulers make uh, wooden rulers, the old triangular wooden rulers, they make real good floating bridges for your for your monochord. And that reason is is that you got you know, you you got a, a something you can slide but you also have a, a point there that you can you can you can dampen. Now the way you work this and the way the Pythagoreans experimented with this is that they would take this and and they would start these ratios. And the first one they had, they bring the um, they they divide the um, you know the, uh, the the face of the of the the, the plank or the, the stud into uh, the half, and so they knew what the exact half of it was, and they put the bridge right on that half. And they would they would pluck them you know and they put in, they damp the bridge with their hand or fingers or whatever and then they would pluck the cord and they would get a get a note and uh, then they they would take and they would take half of you know half of uh, what they what they had they would cut that in half and then they would move the bridge down to to the half of what they of what they had just plucked. And they would damp that down, and they damp, uh, you know, damp both of them down, and and then they would pluck that, and that would be that would be the next uh, note. Now, so they have a half, they have a uh, they have a half of what they had before, and then they would keep having this uh, this chord, and you keep keep having it all the way down, and that was the that was their original idea of how to uh, how to develop the the, uh, uh, the sound pattern for the, the, the spheres, for the planetary spheres. Now, they actually thought that the planets were in some kind of air and actually were making a sound. Well, of course, we know now today, of course, planets do make sounds. Of course, Jupiter tends to overwhelm all of them. So if you want to, you know, you, but um, for quite a while, of course, uh, during the age of 
so-called enlightenment, people were poo-pooing that idea. Oh, plants don't make sense. There's nothing out there, and you know, and whatever. But uh, this was what uh, Pythagoras thought that that everything. He he thought that everything had a, had some sort of a vibration or sound to it, and so he was going to create this uh, this uh, battery of sound so that they could mystically attune themselves to the universe itself. Remember now that Hermes, uh, Hermes under the, obviously, the influence of the Pythagoreans, uh, came up with the idea that the universe, that man is a miniature of the universe. And so uh, this, this had a great deal to do with, uh, with starting off that idea. And so what we have here is uh, is a uh, series of ratios. Now, my, as Cindy uh, Ferguson points out in her book, this process got refined through all the way up through the Middle Ages. Um, people were working on it, and because obviously the monochord halving these things each time didn't produce. Uh, really usable intervals, and it was a, it was a concept, it was an idea, but it didn't uh, it didn't really work until uh, so, so this kept going and people kept trying to trying to uh, to do it, and uh, and uh, and uh, finally uh, in, in right in the last the later part of the Renaissance, Johannes Kepler, the, the astronomer, he he came up with a and uh, and Kitty has it here in the book. She has she actually has the keyboard uh, laid out with uh, with Kepler's version of it. Now Kepler, of course, was a uh, was a Copernican. In other words, he, he was a follower of Copernicus, and he knew that uh, that uh, the um, uh, he knew that uh, the earth that the universe didn't revolve around the earth. Uh, but he still was an ardent Pythagorean, and he he uh, took upon the task to take uh, Pythagoras's music of the spheres and make it work with modern tonalities, and and still understanding. And Kepler did. He understood that Pythagoras thought that Saturn was uh, I mean, fast and a high note and fast and the moon was down the bottom and slow and a low note. And he knew that was wrong. But then he, he in deference to Pythagoras, he, um, you know, he allowed that to, to, uh, to continue and produced a usable, a usable modern Pythagorean music of the spheres uh, battery here, which goes down from the, the fixed stars, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon, and of course to that we naturally add the Earth because we want to be able to, uh, to uh, you know, to ground it with the Earth. And uh, so this, um, I'm going to play this for you. I have it on the synthesizer here. So you can hear this. Uh, you can hear what um, what Kepler came up with, which just happens to line up with that that wonderful 
Moldavite singing bowl that we opened up with, which, by the way, is uh, is tuned to opening the third eye, and that, of course, is Jupiter, and that's just said in the Western system, and that hits right on the note. So, and we'll try, we'll experiment using the bowl and the synthesizer notes at the same, and I'll show you how that works. But this, starting up here at the top with the fixed stars and moving down, this is the music of the spheres. They didn't bring uh, 
they they weren't that influenced by this Orphic tradition. They did not bring the celestial power down from above through the spheres the way the Pythagoreans and the Hermetic people did. So consequently, uh, their system is somewhat different. They bring power up from the from the earth and they breathe it in with uh, with pranayama. Now, no, certainly pranayama is very important and it does work. But uh, it's very possible that, that, that uh, although we don't have too much evidence of Pythagoras uh, getting into into pranayama, and yet we do have some hermetic aspects where we apply the the sun and the moon to uh, different parts of the head. So it's possible that uh, and and the Greeks did uh, uh, the, the, the 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 aspirate of breathing was important to to the ancient Greeks. So consequently. Uh, our system is, even though it took all the way up to uh, the 1700s to get together, but then, you know, from what I understand, uh, the the Hindu chakra system really didn't get started until about 1500 uh, uh, A.D. anyway, and so uh, they didn't, they, they, they didn't, they, they didn't get too far, too far ahead of us. Uh, and the the impact of Pythagoras in other areas, um, and this of course is the part that applies to us, is what we've been what we've been uh, dealing with now. But but Kitty Ferguson really really shows how this high, this idea of a universe that you really can understand the laws and the rules of why it does what it does, uh, why it, uh, you know, Empedocles said everything is air, earth, fire, water, love, and strife. But then Pythagoras came uh, and says, well, yeah, well, if that's the case, uh, let's, uh, let, let's, let, let's, let's figure out how to, uh, what what makes love run and what makes strife happen and 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 what are what are the numerical equivalents of this? How do we engineer earth, fire, water, love, and strife and uh, and make it work? Now, um, you know the uh, the putting aside of Pythagoras occurred primarily because he was very very influential all the way up through the renaissance he didn't he didn't get to get put aside until uh, the age of enlightenment when uh, uh when you know we had everything had to be scientifically validated otherwise it was it was just uh, an imagination uh and that but now uh, in the past uh uh 30 years, 30, 40 years, we are beginning to look at Pythagoras' ideas and his his schemes and realize that, yes, yes, he did. The universe is this way. It may not be exactly the way he, 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 uh, but but he was on the right track. He had the right concept. And, yes, vibration and and, and, uh, harmony. And, uh, like I said, in the abstract, you know, we're all familiar with the uh, the uh, uh, close encounters of the third kind. That little tune they played uh, in, vari- in variations to communicate with the aliens. 
and you remember all the different variations of that. The idea here was that that if music is universal, and if we can't, if we don't, if we don't know their language and they don't know ours, let's communicate with music. And Pythagoras would have, uh, the ghost of Pythagoras was probably smiling and whistling along with him <laughs> because this is what he had been saying, you know, uh, 2,500 years ago. And um, so in many, many ways, this is, uh, this is the, a new Pythagorean age. But the debt that we owe to him uh, is, uh, is incalculable. This man was an incredible master, and uh, and his school, you know, was was revered. Plato, by the way, uh, as I think I maybe mentioned, Plato uh, went over to Cortona and Crotona and and stayed there for years, just trying. And there was a couple hundred years after Pythagoras, trying to learn as much as he could about Pythagoras. He was he was an ardent and still somewhat secretive Pythagorean. Uh, the Timaeus, Plato's Timaeus, is is virtually virtually all Pythagorean. And as Gershom Shalom, the great Kabbalistic scholar, said, the the Kabbalah of the Middle Ages, and uh, especially the Sephiroth Zero, which comes out around 300 A.D., is definitely Pythagorean. And so. Yeah, the structure of the of the Kabbalah, as uh, and you know, I, Fred Fred Adams uh, took a Pythagorean to Trachis and 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 he bisected, trisected it, and came up with a grid off of this that that all different versions, authentic versions of the Tree of Life, have to fit on that grid. So the Tree of Life structure is Pythagorean, and. Um, and I think Leonor Lee would probably admit to this also. Uh, so the the influence of of Pythagoras uh, drawing upon the Phoenician traditions, the Orphic traditions, he he had a tremendous influence on Gnosticism, on Christianity, on and of course a tremendous. He one of the uh, if thrice greatest Hermes is three people, then Pythagoras is certainly one of them. <laughs> and uh, you know, so so this is something that I think we all should should um, really really study is this. And I and I was absolutely fascinated with uh, with Miss Ferguson's book, and I strongly recommend it uh, to everyone. You know, in the, is interested in the in the Hermetic tradition because uh, the Hermetic tradition uh, just exalts and nurtures Pythagorean wisdom. And now, next week, we're going to have a um, a call-in night, which we haven't had in a while, and we're going to discuss these various aspects that we have been talking about both in the Hermetic link and in the music of Pythagoras, and these uh, these various uh, uh, aspects of the Western tradition that that uh, that we really should take seriously. And I want to leave you with this thought. One of the 
problems with modern Western occultism. And it is becomes more and more obvious the more you uh, delve into it, is that modern occultists don't read the classics. They don't read books on Pythagoras. They don't read the Hermetic treatises. They don't read Macrobius. They don't read the the um, uh, they don't read Plato's Timaeus. They don't read where our tradition really comes from. They spend a lot of time reading Blavatsky and Levy and and um, and Paul Case and and and, uh, and and I'm not going to say it's bad to read Regardi because Regardi had Regardi certainly had a better grasp on on this classical material than some of the other people I've mentioned. And but the, the problem with with, with modern Western occultists is they don't get back to what really, really started their, the tradition off and what, what it's grounded in. And so next week we're going to discuss these classics, all of these classic uh, works that, that, that you should read and that you should, uh, that you should base your, your, your concepts on rather than, than uh, uh, some of the ideas that have come down to us, uh, you know, from from modern occultists uh, who have their own slant on things. And so next week, you know, let's let's hear from you. Let's 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 hear from you and let's uh, let's get some good discussions going. And uh, and you know, and so and uh, until then. And remember now, our call-in number for next week. I'll give it to you now. Our call-in number is three four seven eight five seven. One eight three zero. That's three four seven eight five seven one eight three zero. So, get your questions ready, and we're going to talk. But let's try to stay on topic. We're going to talk about classical sources, classical and 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 medieval and Renaissance source material for the Hermetic magical tradition. And so, until next week. Good magic, and we'll see you soon. Bye.